Thank you, Chandler. As one of the people that has gone over to their house for dinner, I think you should take them up on it. Um, it is fun. It's a very large table, like really large. And, uh, and they do. They live this so beautifully well. Um, and I, I loved hearing from them, so thank you. Uh, in 1963, uh, Martin Luther King, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was arrested and put in jail in Birmingham. And one of the things that I read kind of in preparation for the series that we're starting today is um, his letter that he wrote from the Birmingham jail. And a couple things struck me as I was reading it. First of all, sometimes we forget just how like Christian uh, Dr. King was. Like this letter is just littered with references to Jesus. And um, <clears throat> you remember that it was his faith in Jesus and the Imago Dei that fueled so much of what he did and um, the, the fights that he was fighting. But the second thing that struck me so interesting, and, and I recommend you go read the letter because it is one of the great works that's come out of like America uh, that's been written, is um, he's addressing his critics, um, and that's basically what the letter is. Uh, one group of people were, were criticizing him, and he wanted to address their critique. And so what he does is he goes through and he critiques all extremes of uh, how everyone else wanted to deal with civil rights and segregation at the time. And so he starts, and this is the one he spent the least time with, but he starts with the white radical, the Ku Klux Klan, and he talks about what was wrong with that, and that was more obvious. But then he talks about the white moderate, and the white moderate was, were groups of people that were saying, hey, just give us more time. We're, we're going to make this right, but you just need to give us more time. Don't do the protest thing. Like, give us time to work this out. And, and he says this in the letter. He said, the Negro's great stumbling block in the stride towards freedom is not the Ku Klux Klanner, but the white moderate. That's the primary group of people that he spends time addressing in his letter. And then he goes on to the complacent black community. He said that um, so many black people of the time had been worn down by racism and segregation that they have just sort of become numb to it. Or he even calls out those that have started to profit off of segregation. And then the final critic that um, he addresses is the violent black nationalist group, and he specifically calls out Elijah Muhammad and some of the things that he was leading, and he said that it is made up of people who have lost faith in America, who have absolutely repudiated Christianity, and who have concluded that the white man is an incurable devil. And he doesn't address the other things that were going on, like people from the South saying, just go back to Boston, this isn't your problem, this doesn't have to be something that you carry. What's so interesting about Dr. King's experience is that very few people agreed with him uh, at the beginning. Everybody thought that he could be doing something a little bit differently. Uh, everybody thought that he could go to one extreme or the other. And um, you don't end up with a statue on the National Mall by being ineffective. And so apparently Dr. King was effective, but Dr. King took the boldest stand I believe that he could make by staying in the middle. He stayed in the middle. He addressed all four areas that were coming at him and saying, if you would come to our corner, we could team up, we could be more effective. If you would just get more radical or if you would stop being so peaceful, um, if you would kind of join us in what we're thinking, if you would just give us more time. Everybody was trying to pull Dr. King to their corner, and Dr. King, I believe, took the boldest stance that he could take by simply staying in the middle. And uh, in the middle... I want to make sure I define that. The middle is not passive. The middle isn't safe. The middle often will draw the most critique 
of the places that we stand, but nearly every problem that we face is solved from the middle. Nearly every problem that's worth solving is solved from the middle. And Dr. King knew that. He knew that if he went to one side or the other, his effectiveness would go down. But again, they don't build statues in our National Mall of people that were ineffective. And as I was reading this article, I was struck with um, maybe separate or different issues that we're dealing with. But also, like, what a bold, wise stance that that man took that ended up being so effective. And so this morning, we're starting uh, a new series uh, inside of Wholehearted called Worldview. And we're just submitting this idea of, are we willing to see the world as Jesus sees it? Are we willing to submit our thoughts and our preferences underneath of what Jesus says and how he sees the world? And this series is coming out of a couple different things. One, it's coming out of Dr. King's letter from Birmingham. It's also coming out of an article that Tim Keller wrote a couple years ago. And he was talking about the early church. And he just made this observation that the early church, specifically the church from uh, Jesus' resurrection until the time of Constantine, when Christianity became popular and legal in Rome, he said, man, that church was flourishing in the midst of incredible paganism and deep persecution. I wonder how that's possible. And he says this in his article. He said, in the first three centuries, Christians were persecuted more than any other religious group. Because they refused to honor other gods or worship the emperor, they were seen as too exclusive, too narrow, and a threat to social order. Does that sound familiar? So why, if Christians were seen as offensive and were excluded from circles of influence and business and often put to death, why did anyone become a Christian? He said it's because they were a contrast community, a counterculture that was both offensive and yet attractive to many. And if you go on and read the rest of the article, he states the basis for this being these believers found themselves in a new identity. It was rooted in a completely different identity. They no longer identified with the things they were identifying before. They had identified and rooted themselves in Christ. It started with a new identity, and then he goes over five aspects that they practiced, or five ways that they saw the world that was just a little bit different than the rest of the world at the time. And these are going to be the five things we talk about over the next five weeks. He said, first, the early church was multiracial and experienced unity across ethnic boundaries that was startling. It was startling. Read Acts 13, Ephesians 2. We see this all over the New Testament, and then we see it even more if we study church history. Number two, the church was famous for its hospitality to the poor and suffering. We reference the story of the Good Samaritan that Jesus taught, they took that seriously in how they were practicing their faith early on. Number three, it was a community that was committed to the value of life, all life. This is unborn, refugee, elderly. They were committed to all life. Number four, it was a sexual counterculture. Keller said that sex at the time was merely a physical appetite that was irresistible. They made that a very, very different thing. And number five, the early church was a community of radical forgiveness and reconciliation. It was a community where vengeance was popular outside, but they withheld vengeance. And as I'm reading this article and other people way smarter than me have noticed, that if you take these five things and you plot them on our political two-party system, it's really confusing. Because you look at a couple of them, two of them, and you're like, man, this feels like kind of a more progressive 
idea, and then you look at two of them, and it's like, well, this sounds a little bit more like a conservative idea, and then we get to radical forgiveness and reconciliation, and that's just otherworldly. That's found nowhere in our political or world schemes. And so you look at this, and it's like, man, I wonder if, and this is crazy, and I said this last week, but I wonder if it's possible that Jesus is above a two-party system. I wonder if the way of Jesus might be above the things that we're engaging with. I wonder if the worldview that Jesus introduced to us actually is something much bigger and more beautiful than the ways we're trying to squeeze it in to our own personal preferences. Does anybody think that's a possible idea? Oh, yikes, okay. I haven't swayed you yet. I will by the end of today. Um, So, my assertion for the next five weeks is that we can disagree, and this is what being, I think, a, a good active American means. We can disagree on how to implement these things in our lives. We cannot disagree if we're going to. So we can disagree how, we can debate how it's best to care for the poor. We cannot debate if we're going to care for the poor. We can debate and disagree on how we're going to care for the unborn and the refugee. We cannot disagree or debate if we're going to care for all life. And so we want to just simply and slowly engage and we want to say, okay, man, this could be so much bigger than our worldview, than what the world pitches that we can see. And this is so much bigger than even our political landscape. Politics are the low-hanging fruit. This is much bigger than that. This is more of how do we see the world and what lens do we see everything else through? And the big goal of this series is that we would start to and begin to and commit to see the world like Jesus does. Um, We don't see this a ton in the New Testament, but if you study kind of the culture that was around Jesus at the time, um, the Pharisees and Sadducees, so the two big religious camps, they actually didn't really get along. The Pharisees were more progressive. The Sadducees were more conservative. They didn't agree about a whole lot. They did agree that Jesus was a big threat. They agreed that whatever this man was bringing wasn't their corner or this corner, but it was very dangerous. And so one, I want to encourage you, if you don't fit cleanly into a specific way to see the world or cleanly into a political party, you might be more like Jesus than you think. Also, I want to just slowly caution you that if you fit perfectly into a political party, that might not be exactly the way that Jesus would see the world. And so we just want to say, man, I wonder if we could be a little bit more like Jesus and walk that radical middle. Jesus and Dr. King, both wildly effective, walked a middle. And the middle isn't safe, but the middle is bold. And so what does it look like for us to walk that line? And uh, the big passage that we're going to be referring to over the next five weeks is Romans 12, uh, 1 and 2. So Romans 12, Paul's writing this beautiful, really theologically rich letter to the Roman Christians. And he says this, he says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters... In view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, his pleasing, and his perfect will. As I read through that, specifically verse 2, I just want to pull out three comments or questions. Number one, are you willing, and don't answer this quickly, Are you willing, am I willing, to sacrifice my preferences and my desires for his? Like, really think about that. Am I willing to come under the lordship of Jesus, not just in the things I do on Sunday morning or how I attend my house group, but are you willing to come under the lordship of Jesus 
even in how he sees the world? Are you willing to sacrifice your preferences and your desires for his? Number two, again, out of verse two, um, conforming, and this is just an observation, conforming to the pattern of this world seems to affect my ability to know God's will. Verse two says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. So um, it's possible that conforming to the pattern of this world, to the thought patterns of this world, might actually inhibit our ability to know God's will. And then number three, and this is probably a question that the world's asking more than we're asking, but is it possible for you guys to actually have your mind renewed and still be kind? Is it possible to have a renewed mind? Is it possible to have a biblical worldview and still be kind as we live in a culture that doesn't share that value? Also, if this is your first time here, welcome. <laughs> we usually have a ton of fun, I promise. I'm usually much more charming. You should ask someone else. Uh, but we're kicking off, and we want to be a community, and this is uh, a little bit about us. We want to be a community that doesn't shy away from hard conversations, but we want to have them with truth, grace, and nuance. So we want to engage in, um, and especially this morning as we lay the foundation, we want to engage in conversations that maybe are a little bit tough to have in a church context, and we just want to say, man, I think Jesus is above it all. We believe that whatever he says, go says goes, and we want to come under his lordship, and that might mean sacrificing our preferences. If this is your first time here, we're not asking that of you. If you're a follower of Jesus, that is what I would ask of you, is for the next five weeks, be here, listen to all five for sure, because if you listen to a couple, you might think, man, this is this way or that way. Listen to all five because they don't fit into anything that we see in this world. Uh, one of the things I'll be referring to a lot over the next uh, two weeks for me and then uh, is the YWAM belief tree. So if you can put that up there. I love Youth with a Mission. That's um, the biggest mission agency, I believe, in the world. And their stuff on worldview is really, really good. Actually... I was suggested that I should give some of the resources that I've studied for this. So one of them is YWAM. They're just really, really good at worldview stuff. I read the book by their co-founder, Darlene Cunningham, called Values Matter. If you want to do more work on this, I suggest that. <clears throat> uh, this Cultural Moment is a great podcast uh, by John Mark Comer. Also, his book, Live No Lies, is something I've pulled a lot from. Beautiful Resistance by John Tyson is another book. And so there, we're not going to cover everything. We just can't cover everything, but some of the resources that are going into this um, series are from those places. But the YWAM belief tree, I love even the image that they got uh, years and years ago. We at church, uh, and I think this is fine, this is not a critique, but we at church spend a lot of time on the top three, whatever is above the soil. We really, I mean, and it's easier, right? We can hone in on the actions that you're doing or the actions that I'm doing, the decisions or the values that we have. All of those come from something below ground, which are our beliefs. What do we really believe to be true? And we spend more time in the church on beliefs. We rarely talk about, and that's what we're going to do for the next month, what the roots are getting fed from. And that is what YWAM would say is worldview. It's what the Cunninghams who started YWAM would say. That's our worldview. And we just want to take a month and say, okay, we spend a lot of time on the top. What is actually informing the thing that's feeding our roots. So um, sometimes I say this phrase, relevance is coming, and relevance is coming, but it's like in the midst of a bunch of nerding out in history and sociology. So you guys ready? Okay, there's not going to be like this glaring moment that you're like, aha, it's going to be like in the grit of so much content, but I know you're so pumped for it. I can see it in your faces. 
The anticipation is killing you. So, author William Faulkner says this. He says, actually, oftentimes crisis is good for faith. And he makes reference um, in one of his writings to 9-11. Now, if you're old enough to remember 9-11, you remember that not only 9-11 was this crazy, tragic event, but on September 16th, five days later, was one of the highest church attendances ever. And it sparked a re-engagement with faith, and it sparked a re-engagement with the church. What's so interesting about that crisis compared to the crisis that we are in and hopefully coming out of, the COVID plus is what I'll call it, COVID plus racial tensions plus a political climate that's just really been uncomfortable, it's been awful. This crisis, I believe, is much deeper and has affected us probably in a more profound way than even September 11th has. Yet, if you look at all of the statistics, people aren't rushing back to church. People aren't rushing back to engage with God. Actually, the opposite is happening in He asked the question, and we're going to ask the question, why is that? And a lot of cultural commentators say this, that there are three stages to Christianity in a culture, pre-Christian, Christian, Christian, post-Christian. So pre-Christian is simply this. It's before Jesus gets there. It's before the Bible gets there. You're worshiping things like Zeus or the moon or the earth or your tribal chief. I mean, it's like it's very primitive. And then you move. You can see that uh, cultures have shifted into a Christian culture. And this is, this does not mean everyone is a follower of Jesus. What it does mean is the Bible has influenced some of the influential moments of that time. So think about the founding fathers, and if you know your history, we know. We know not all of those men were followers of Jesus. But you can see in their writings the inspiration or at least some influence from the Bible. Or you can think about Victorian England. So there's pre-Christian culture, there's Christian culture. Not everyone's Christian, but it's at least influenced by Christian values. And then... You move beyond that, hopefully you don't, but you do, into post-Christian culture. And a lot of commentators would say that's what's been happening for the last 40, 30, 20 years, and that's what's been happening at a rapid pace in the last three years, is we in the West have really rushed from a Christian culture to a post-Christian culture. And what's interesting about a post-Christian culture is not that we return to the things we were doing before. There's not been a spike in Zeus worship or... Worshiping the stars, that's not necessarily happening. But what post-Christian culture does, and you'll probably experience this to be true once I say it, is it borrows the values of Christianity, but it leaves the man of Christianity behind. So it borrows the values of Christianity, but it leaves Christ out of it. Uh, Cultural commentator Mark Sayers says this. This is a dense quote, but stick with it. Post-Christianity attempts to, remo- to move beyond Christianity while simultaneously feasting on its fruit. Post-Christian culture attempts to retain the solace of faith whilst gutting it of the cost commitments and restraints placed on the individual. Post-Christianity intuitively yearns for the justice and the shalom of the kingdom while defending the reign of the individual will. First of all, he says the word whilst, so you know he's smart. Nobody says that. He's Australian, so he can get away with it. The way he summarizes basically his whole book that he writes on this is he says that we, in a post-Christian culture, we have longed for the kingdom without the king. It's a very simple way of saying it. We want the kingdom without the king. Now, this is the part of the realization, and, uh, and you've seen this maybe in our world, that we would just say, okay, well then fine. We're going to pick up our ball and we're going to go home. You can't have our kingdom without our king. But I want us to maybe engage a little bit more. And this is more for me than anybody else. I want us to lean in for a second and see the beauty of, what, of the opportunity that we have. 
People are longing for the kingdom. People are longing. Like, there is, there is almost this glass ceiling that is put into place where we can see utopia, but there's something that's keeping us from getting there, and we have the answer. We can't move into the kingdom without the king. We can't move into the kingdom without being empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so we have a couple options. We can just say, no, you guys are done. You don't get our kingdom without our king. Or we can say, we would love, actually, we would love to submit this idea to you. We would love to submit this idea that maybe our king, Jesus, is what is going to usher in the fullness of this kingdom that you've been longing for. Uh, Part of a post-Christian culture Um, that I think is actually really, really good, is it is unbelievably moral. A post-Christian culture, and I want you to think about this, we have seen a rise in advocacy of human rights faster than I think we have in many other eras before. And we should applaud this. We should engage with this. This is incredible. But with it has come the rise of cancel cancel culture, online shaming. Um, We have an internet mob that is the judge, jury, and executioner. There is no trial. And so we see aspects of the kingdom, and we yet don't see the fullness of it being here. The West has inherited Christianity's high standard of morality, but we've left behind the power that actually enables us to bring it to pass. And that is the unique opportunity that the church has in our time right now. Are you following? Are we here? Okay, a little bit more. Because here's the good news. This is not the first time that a group of people have tried to cling to a belief system and a God in the midst of a host culture that was not exactly accommodating to it. It's basically what the book of Jeremiah was written about. Jeremiah, uh, in this time, was writing a letter to the exiles in Babylon. And what had happened before this is there were years and years and years of God saying, look, Israel, if you don't repent, I'm, I'm I'm going to leave you to your own devices. It's the worst judgment I think God can give us. It says this in Romans 1 that God gave us over to our sinful desires. He gave them over to their sinful desires. When God stops convicting you of sin, that's not the peace of God. That is the judgment of God when he lets us do whatever we want. And so God says, fine, Israel, you can do whatever you want. And years after that, Babylon comes in, ransacks Jerusalem, and takes many of the inhabitants out and marches them 700 miles away into their city and their culture. And the Bible calls this, they were strangers in a strange land. And so Jeremiah is writing his letter to the exiles in Babylon. Specifically, chapter 29 is an incredible template for how you live as an exile in a culture that is not reflective of the values that you want to hold. So Jeremiah 29, we're going to read 4 through 8 right now, and we're going to dig into, okay, what's Jeremiah saying? Because he's offering a, a direction that we don't often see offered to us. He says this, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. We'll stop there, and I know it's killing you that I didn't read verse 11. I know. For the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Um, If you need to see it, Hobby Lobby opens at 9 a.m. tomorrow. (laughs) 
I seriously looked it up. It's closed on Sundays because Sabbath. Um, We're going to stop at verse 8, though. Now, before I look at what Jeremiah says we can do, I want to offer the two solutions that the world has offered us. Number one is something called separatism. And maybe you've experienced this probably more, at least from what I can remember, in the 90s. It's less popular today in Christian culture. But separatism says, okay, this culture's crazy. They're coming for my faith. I need a Christian doctor. I need a Christian mechanic because those are the only ones that can work on my car. I need a Christian barber. They are the only ones that I trust to cut my hair. And now I've circled the wagons, and I've got my Christian culture, and so now I'm fine. They can't touch me. It's called separatism. We separate from the culture. Now, the other one, and I would argue that this, just being in this church and knowing myself, this is probably the one that you're more tempted towards. It's called syncretism. And syncretism says, no, 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 just get sucked into the gravitational pull of culture. Actually, it would be great if you could be indistinguishable from the rest of the culture. I mean, yeah, you can have your beliefs, but they're private, and they're just, you know, in your own bedroom. But like everywhere else, I want you to look exactly like the rest of the world. It'd be great if nobody even knew that you held these beliefs. And the temptation here is not so much towards atheism, but it's towards idolatry. It's not God or this, it's God and this. That's the temptation that we often feel, and I'd say is more prevalent in Christian culture today, is if we could just assimilate perfectly into culture. If we could just do a little bit of DIY spirituality, where we take some of what Jesus said, but definitely not his sexual ethics, I'd like the modern version of that, but some of the Bible, the Old Testament is good, but then I'd like to squeeze it into my political view, and all of a sudden now I have a religion that is so beautifully and wonderfully cultivated to look like me. That's syncretism. Jeremiah says, actually, no, guys, there's, there's a beautiful and third way. And he says, here's the template for how you live as exiles in the world. Number one, verse five, build houses. Make this place home. Settle down. Get to know the culture. Number two, marry. And I think that's both literal, but also I think it's above that. It's not just getting married. It wasn't the culture. But today it's form a thick web of relationships. Like really engage. This doesn't have to be you find a spouse. This has to be you find good friends. Be ingrained relationally in the culture that you're in. Paul calls this becoming a colony of heaven. Also in verse 6, it says, increase in number. We should dream. We should be the best dreamers out there. We should evangelize. We should share our faith. We should share our experience. We should see people coming into faith because if Jesus is beautiful and wonderful, then that should be news worth following. Increase in number. Verse 7, it says, seek the peace and prosperity of the city. And I talked a lot about this last week. This changes the way that we work as a parent, as a student, as someone in a job. How are we working? We should work as if we're working for the Lord, and we want to see Cincinnati prosper. We want to pray for Cincinnati. And then uh, the last one from verse 8, it's the only do not in there. It says, do not let the false teachers invade. Do not listen to those that are offering something that is contrary to the things that you believe. It's almost like Jeremiah is saying, I want your bodies in the world, but I want your spirit and your mind to still be otherworldly. It's almost like a combination of the two things that we see. He says, don't let the teaching, the itching of your ears, don't let that come in and invade the way that you think. You should have a different worldview. And uh, and this is, I think, as I'm studying this, this looks like the beautiful middle third way. It's not separatism, 
where we just huddle together. It's also not syncretism. We don't look exactly like the rest of our culture. And what scripture refers to this group of people as over and over again is a remnant. There's always a remnant. Read through the entire Bible. There is always a remnant that's believing God. There's always a remnant that's believing the best of what he can do through them in their culture. And a remnant is a group inside of a culture that doesn't share the values of the host that they are living in. And God's constantly referring to the remnant as something that's beautiful and wonderful, and it's his plan for redeeming the world, is Jesus through a remnant. And so over the next few weeks, the invitation is going to be a beautiful commitment to following Jesus no matter what, an invitation to stay faithful in our exile, an invitation to live beautifully, winsomely, winsomely unbelievable lives that still are resistant to the ways of the world. It can be both. Jeremiah offers both of those. Uh, The last command that we see here is um, in verse 13. It says, and you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. So the final thing that he says, and this is more of a command than like an encouragement, but he said, seek me and you'll find me. If you seek me, if you increase in hunger for me, you will find me. So we should see God's presence invading more and more of our lives. We don't have to huddle together because we actually have the presence of God with us. Now here's what's interesting about both of those other options. Whether it's separatism or syncretism, both of them actually come from the same inspiration, which is fear. One is afraid that they're coming to get us. The other is afraid that maybe I'll look different or maybe um, I will be viewed in an unfavorable light. Both of those, actually, they have separate responses, but both of those are driven by fear. What Jeremiah is offering is driven by love, and perfect love casts out fear. And the love says, I want you to get in there, but I don't want you to become like it. And so Jeremiah offers us this beautiful third way, this beautiful middle ground, which is the most bold of any of them. And he says, I wonder if you come this direction, if this is actually what you'll be looking for. So the, the one that we're just briefly going to touch on today of the five. This was all intro, by the way. Uh, and I chose the one that I think is the least controversial, probably the most difficult, is um, radical forgiveness. That's one of the five things that Keller outlined that the early church did that was just so outside of the worldview of the time. Um, you've probably heard the name of Rachel Den Hollander. <clears throat> Rachel is a follower of Jesus. She also is incredibly accomplished gymnast, and she was the first person to publicly accuse Dr. Larry Nasser of sexual violence and sexual assault. Um, and she was the first of over 150, the uh, Olympic coach and the coach from Michigan State. This was all over the news about four years ago. And, uh, and Rachel, because she was the first, she ended up being the last that got to testify both to the judge and to her abuser, Dr. Nasser, and this is what she said. This is how she closes out the uh, entire court hearing. She's in the room with a man that abused her from age 15, and she says this. In our early hearings, you, Larry, you brought your Bible into the courtroom, and you have spoken of praying for forgiveness. And so it is on that basis that I appeal to you. If you have read the Bible you carry, you know the definition of sacrificial love portrayed is of God himself loving so sacrificially that he gave up everything to pay a penalty for the sin he did not commit. 
This man abused her from age 15. And she says this, by his grace, I too choose to love this way. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so that you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that as well. If you read the entire account, it is uncomfortable. I read it to myself, by myself, and I got uncomfortable reading some of the things that she had to recount in that room. Not one person would have judged her if instead of addressing him, she took the opportunity while he's handcuffed to go over to charge him and to get a couple shots. And no one would have blamed the bailiff if before he restrained her, he let her get in a couple of shots. What this man did was beyond evil. It was beyond awful. And yet, Mrs. Dunn Hollander says, I choose to love you this way. And she says, I pray that you experience true forgiveness. This is otherworldly. This is found nowhere in the value system, anywhere except through Jesus. This kind of radical forgiveness we don't find modeled anywhere, at least not perfectly, except in the life of Jesus. And man, it's really close to what she did to that man. This is incredible. This is what fuels the rest of the five, is that we live radically seeking reconciliation and forgiveness. And this is part one of this series that we're going to talk about. It's the least controversial, but I would say it is the hardest for us to grasp. And I want to encourage you to actually engage with this seeking reconciliation and unity and life change, not seeking to prove a point or to huddle to your corner because Jesus offers us this beautiful, wonderful middle way. Because in a world that says revenge, Jesus says forgive. Keller writes this about this portion of his article. He said, Christians were often excluded and criticized, but they were also actively persecuted, imprisoned, attacked, and killed. Nevertheless, Christians taught forgiveness and withheld retaliation against opponents. Guys, this is the gospel. This is the gospel right here. This unbelievable radical forgiveness. It's the one that lays the foundation for everything else that we can do, and it lays the foundation for why we would ever follow a man that might ask us to give up some of our beliefs and preferences for the sake of following him. And it's because of this that we can radically forgive. We radically forgive because we've been radically forgiven. This didn't start with us. This started with Jesus. We radically forgive because he has first radically forgiven us. The thesis statement of a really long, wonderful letter that Paul writes to the Christians in Rome is uh, Romans 1.16. This is the summary of that letter. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. So that word salvation, it's more than heaven later. It is the power of God now. It is wholeness now. Is, and this is okay if you give me a little feedback. Is anyone crazy enough to believe that? Oh, no, I guess it's just me. Is anyone crazy enough to believe that the gospel actually is the power of God? Like that it actually can change your life. That the hopeless situation that you're in doesn't have to be hopeless because hope has come into the room. The gospel is the power of God. The gospel holds power over every situation that we're in. The gospel brings reconciliation to gaps that we did not think were possible to reconcile. So I'll ask again, is anybody else thankful for the forgiveness that's offered in the gospel? Yes, amen. The gospel gives us the ability to be reconciled to God, and then it encourages us to go out and offer radical forgiveness to others. 
A couple other things about this gospel before we start to worship. The gospel is often described as the gospel of joy. It is not the gospel of burden. Guys, it is fun to follow Jesus, amen? It is fun to follow Jesus. It is fun to give forgiveness because it is otherworldly. And if we lean into the burden of Jesus and the burden of submitting to his desires, it becomes something that is a burden to us. But the gospel is described throughout the New Testament as joy, as good news. And so if the gospel is the power of God, then we're going to worship like it. All right, so let's stand up. We're going to stand up and we're going to go into worship. And here's what I want to encourage us to do. I want you to worship like you've been forgiven. I want you to engage in worship just for a moment if you put aside the burdens that you're carrying. And I want us to remember that we've been forgiven of much. And the encouragement is to go out and to forgive. But just for a moment, let's rest in the fact that you have been forgiven of much. And it's that that is otherworldly. As always, we have prayer in all four corners of the room. Do not come in with a burden and leave with the same burden. Get prayer. The Lord's table is also available for anyone that is a follower of Jesus. And of course, the front is always open because sometimes we need a change of posture to remind ourselves of what's changing in our heart. But let's go ahead and worship like we're forgiven.